Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Space Junk. I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space. And somewhere out there, I think, out in the beautiful climate of California is my co-host, Dustin Gibson. You out there, Dustin? I am, Tony. It finally stopped raining here. We're good. You know, we're not used to the rain out here, so it's been a really strange I know. You guys have been getting those things. What are they called? Rivers? Atmospheric <laughs> rivers? Is that... It's like nothing but yeah. rain. It's crazy. Hey, we're, we're back the next 12 nights in a row. We've got imaging nights, so we're good to go. Oh man, you are and you are imaging like a madman. You just showed me some of your latest time. work. And All I the it time. is it is amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, today, guys, we are going to be joining Dustin in the studio out in California at OPT is uh Jay Pasikoff, and he is a solar physicist and we are going to be among a great many other things and we are going to be talking today about solar eclipses because we just passed we had a big one here in august of 2017 we've got another one coming up this year i think in chile and we're going to talk a little bit about that but first let me get let me get jay in here jay are you out there Hello, glad to see you or see you over the airways from coast yeah. to coast. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We are coast to coast on this one. So, Jay, what brings you to OPT? What are you doing out there? I am on sabbatical from Williams College where I'm a professor, and I am at the Carnegie Observatories in Pasadena. Uh, it's really nice for me to be there because when I long ago, when I was about to start college, uh, my parents took a road trip with me, the first time I'd ever flown at the age of 16, and we went to a summer program at Berkeley. It's great the NSF runs programs like that. And we stopped at the headquarters of the 100 and 200-inch telescopes in Pasadena. Even the director came out to meet this young high school student. Oh, wow. So it was really great. Now I have an office in that same building that, <laughs> oh, that, that I went to then, and it's very uh, inspirational. So I've spent time at Caltech and at the Carnegie Observatories uh, since then. So we've been in Pasadena this spring. And Jay, you coming in, I knew you had done a lot. I mean, especially with eclipses, if you start looking at images of eclipses, your stuff is going to pop up. But um, reading your bio, I had no idea how how deep it really went. So you started at Harvard, right, in the 60s. It just happened uh, that two weeks after I started as a freshman, there was a total eclipse of the sun that was visible. And is that what got from, you? From, from uh, near... Near Cambridge, and my professor Donald Menzel was giving a freshman seminar. Uh, first time they were involving the senior faculty with the beginning students, and he took us up in a borrowed airplane to see that eclipse. Wow! Is that what got you hooked? Well, that's uh, about seventy eclipses ago, so it clearly 70. got me hooked. Yes, you've seen seventy eclipses. I've seen seventy solar eclipses, now. and you're and you're headed to Chile. I'm looking forward to my seventy-first solar eclipse in Chile on the second of July. It's a good time. These last few years have been a great time. For eclipse lovers like yourself, right? You just had the one, the Great American Eclipse, they called it, and then Chile this year, and then what? Uh, two years later, another big one just uh, coming through Texas, right? Well, and there there are two more eclipses, so total eclipses between those. Oh, wow. in in December 2020, there's another eclipse. 
that and that's the summertime in South America. There's another eclipse that goes across Chile and Argentina. We'll be on the Argentinian coast then. And the year after, there's one that's a lot trickier. It, only in Antarctica and the the uh, ocean near there. So whether I'm going to be on a ship for a few weeks or just in an airplane overflying, I'm not I'm not sure yet. And then in 2023, there's one that nips the corner of Australia, mm. and all that is before uh, we have the next big American eclipse on uh, uh, April of 2024. So you'll even the one in Antarctica, you'll you'll be there for that. Oh, I go to all the eclipses. Wow, everybody should. <laughs> You're committed. Yeah. You're committed. Well, yeah, you know. Well, can we can we talk about what I, I I want to just take a quick step back, guys, if I could, uh, and and let's we we defined for because we don't assume people know everything that that listen to these podcasts. Let's start with what a solar eclipse is. Can you tell us what they are, and then maybe uh, tell us how they how it is that they occur so often around different areas of the globe? Well, a solar eclipse is uh, related to a word that I learned in elementary school that I used to win contests of the game ghost with when you're spelling something. And it's an example of a syzygy, S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y, which is just a great word for little kids to play with. Uh, And it's when three objects are in a line. And so the earth, the sun, and the moon uh, are in a a line. That's a syzygy. And when the moon is between the earth and the sun, uh, that's a solar eclipse. The moon is blocking out the sun. And when the moon's on the far side of the sun and goes in the shadow well, I'm sorry, the moon never goes on the far side of the sun of the earth. Uh, when the moon is on the far side of the earth from the sun and the moon goes in the earth's shadow, that's a lunar eclipse. Uh, and now the orbit of the uh, moon around the earth is a little elliptical. And so sometimes the moon's a little further away and a little smaller in the sky and sometimes a little closer, a little bigger in the sky by a few percent. And so when the moon goes in front of the sun, um, which it does a few times a year, um, then if it's perfectly aligned, which it does about once a year, sometimes it's too close and it blocks out the everyday sun completely. And then the normal sunlight doesn't hit the earth. It gets dark as night. It gets a million times darker than normal. And in the last minute or so, it gets 10,000 times darker. So it's very, very dramatic and scary and awesome. And that's the total eclipse that you want to see. And that happens somewhere on Earth about every year and a half. And then and we, we happen to enjoy in the, the solar system one of the few places where the apparent or the, the apparent size of the sun's disk and the apparent size of the moon's disk are the same to us. That's, yeah, that's pretty so, rare, isn't it? Sure. So plus or minus those, those few percent... And uh, NASA recently gave out some pictures of an eclipse of the sun as seen from the Curiosity spacecraft on the surface of Mars. Uh, I'm going to show some of those pictures just for fun in my uh, seminar at the University of California at San Diego tomorrow. Uh, And there's this potato-shaped thing that goes across the sun, maybe a quarter or sixth the size of the sun. So it's not as dramatic at all. It's kind of fun to see it go across. Right. That's like a transit. It's a bigger than the transit of Venus that we had some years ago. But I, I do like things going in front of the sun. I'm, I'm looking forward. I'm making arrangements for the transit of Mercury going in front of the sun this coming November 11th, 2019. So when something goes in front of the sun is not big enough to make a total eclipse, 
uh, then there could be a ring of everyday sunlight around the moon, an annulus of sunlight, and those are called an annular eclipse. Uh, and that also happens about every year and a half. So uh, those are fun to see, mm -hmm. but you always need your eye protection filter sure. uh, because some of the everyday sun is there, whereas at a total eclipse, you need the eye protection filter for the hour and a half or two hours in which the moon is gradually covering the sun. But then for the most dramatic part in the middle, you take that filter away and it's just glorious. Uh, and <laughs> some people the last few days even have been telling me how they cried and how, how they tried to... Uh, have it explained to them how wonderful it would be. It's even more wonderful than that. So, uh, but so that's a total eclipse, and and the difference between a total eclipse well, it's literally like night and day. And the in totality, it gets dark as night in the middle of the day. I think there's some primal feeling that you're really I've heard that, uh, yeah, you know, afraid or yeah. wondrous and crying and shouting and screaming. So the, yeah. the uh, birds quiet down during totality, but somebody pointed out to me that the people start screaming. Well, you described it as scary when you were first describing it. And, you know, the staff, when they came back, we sent them up to Casper to see the last one here. And uh, when they came back, they said, you know, I thought it would be cool, but I had no idea how life changing it would be. It's an experience like nothing else in the world. And it, um, they were saying it's, it's kind of scary. For those few yes. seconds, like it, it overwhelms yeah. you. Well, I, they, I, I agree with that. It, it's, uh, I think there's something in in our minds that knows there's something wrong with the universe right. With, right. with it getting dark like that in the middle of the day. Well, especially like you're saying, I mean, just the fact that it can happen here and it can't happen on a lot of the other planets, right? Like on Mars, you're not going to see that. Yes. Um, but just uh, it, it has to be an overwhelming feeling to watch it go dark you yeah know, and, and, and it's also brief you know just right. seconds or, or minutes sure. uh and then it's very dramatic as it starts because you can take the filter away just at the last second mm -hmm. and the moon has an irregular edge it's got these mountains and valleys on the moon and whatever's lined up there'd be some last few uh, bits of sunlight we call them beads shining through the valleys on the edge of the moon and the last one the last of these so-called Bailey's beads is so bright compared to everything else in the sky that it looks like a diamond on a ring, and it's known as the diamond ring effect. And yeah. it lasts a few seconds, and then it goes away, and you see this beautiful pearly white corona around. So it's all very, very beautiful, and and none of us has succeeded in describing how fantastic it is to actually see it. We just have to get everybody out there. I think that a lot of people did see uh, the eclipse in 2017, August 21st, yep. 2017. And we'll tell the, and the ones who were in totality know how wonderful it was and they'll tell their friends. And the ones who missed out might have heard from friends that they missed something. So we might have even more people uh, out in uh, uh, April 2024 for the next one that comes across the United States. You know, we have uh, our marketing director here, Ian, you haven't met him yet, but um, he was giving a presentation after the eclipse trying to do exactly what you're talking about, where you try to share the excitement. And he said the same thing. It's it's so impossible to communicate how powerful an event that is to someone that didn't experience it themselves. But he, he did say something funny because, again, with his, he was trying to start the same thing. What is an eclipse? You know, what's the difference in a lunar and a solar eclipse, right? And it's exactly that. When those things are in a line, you can replace the Earth and the moon, which one's blocking the light from the other. Sure. One is a lunar eclipse, the other is a solar eclipse. But he said when the sun comes in between the um, Earth and the moon, 
instead that's called an apocalypse. Yeah. Right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Apocalypse. That's in true Ian fashion, right? Yeah, that but, sounds like Ian. <laughs> yeah. But that was his presentation. But yeah, that's exactly. So that is what a lunar eclipse then is when the earth is blocking the light. Sure. And we had a lunar eclipse that. a few months ago that was right. visible from here. And it's nice to go out at night and you can, and the moon, it's always at a full moon because it, the moon is basically opposite the sun. Right. Um, and then the, the the shadow of the Earth starts falling on the moon, but the shadow in the uh, of the Earth is a few times bigger than the moon across. So first you get a, a a kind of bite out, and by the time the shadow gets there, it's not sharp, and you watch it go across, and it's kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the moon fades out by a considerable factor; it gets thousands of times darker. Mm-hmm. A, a little reddish light can can leak around the Earth's atmosphere with, because the blue has been taken out to make blue skies for people. So the moon can just be faintly red in the sky, and it looks interesting. Um, but it's not the life-changing experience. Yeah, but it's, that... not, it's in the middle of the night. You expect it to get dark at night, sure, so yeah. so it's not that. And then we astronomers are really annoyed at, at some of the terms that people have started throwing around. Blood moon, that doesn't mean anything. It just glows a little. <laughs> oh, I know. just glows a little reddish. Um, yeah. So you don't like that, huh? Uh, Super no, blue so, blood moons are a thing now, <laughs> too. Apparently, yeah, yeah yes. Oh. So people are making up these names, but but for the solar eclipses is just so dramatic, and it is in the middle of the day right. uh, that it 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 really and it does get a million times darker. Uh, so it it really is worth going out of your way. And I literally have gone from the Arctic to the Antarctic and all the continents in between to see uh, to see these eclipses. And this is what you've done most of your study in, right? Because you got your your PhD at Harvard and then continued on studying solar eclipses, right? Well, actually not. Okay. Um, I did this eclipse as a first-year student, uh, and I did my my degree in astronomy, and I was doing quantum mechanics. Okay. Uh, And then um, one of... uh, in, and I was in Harvard Graduate School. I thank my professor, David Laser for getting me into Harvard Graduate School. But I was going to do quantum mechanics with him. And then a new professor at that time, Robert Noyes, who had recently gotten his PhD at Caltech, came and, uh, and said to me, uh, I'm going observing to the Sacramento Peak Observatory this summer. Would you like to come? And I had never actually used a professional telescope. I had built an amateur telescope like the one you have outside here sure. in high school. But I'd never looked through a, a real professional telescope and I and I went out with uh, with him uh, he was working with a solar astronomer named Jacques Beckers at the Sacramento Peak Observatory in Sunspot New Mexico and those turned out to be my thesis observations and they were of the solar chromosphere so there wasn't an eclipse there were just steady uh, observations of the edge of the uh, of the Sun uh, in fact um, we could observe it just about every day in the summer season. It was annoyingly early in the morning because, uh, because then when the sun got high in the sky, it would create turbulence in the in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. So the the seeing the quality of the image would deteriorate after an hour or so. So all my thesis observation was done in that first hour after after sunrise, and I missed breakfast every morning, <laughs> but it was worth it. It was and, worth it, huh? Uh, and then I and I got my PhD. Uh, doing uh, doing the solar chromosphere, so it was solar work. And then Professor Menzel, who had been the uh, solar astronomer who had taken us to the eclipse at the beginning, invited me to a big eclipse in Mexico, uh, and I was the Donald Menzel Research Fellow 
in astronomy at the Harvard College Observatory. And we did an eclipse together on March 7th, 1970. He had gotten support from the National Geographic Society. In fact, we had a joint article in the August 1970 issue of National Geographic. And, uh, uh, and some people from Oaxaca and Mexico have contacted me. They're going to have some 50th anniversary uh, events. And the niece of a little boy who befriended us then is now graduating from college and and she just got in touch. Uh, but but uh, that really was the first uh, big research eclipse uh, uh, that uh, that we did. We took a lot of equipment down to an, a little Indian village south of Oaxaca in Mexico. We made some great observations in very clear skies on March 7th, 1970. So we have to take advantage of having experts in here when we do. So um, some of these things I'd, I'd like to stop you on just to educate us in the, the quickest sure. version. So a chromosphere, what's the chromosphere of the sun? Well, basically, let me start at the beginning of the sun. And I can also refer Perfect. people if they can find my, I had a Scientific American article uh, last August, uh, 2017, just before that uh, that eclipse. Uh, and in fact, I have... Uh, I have a, a popular book called The Sun of All, of All Things that we made for the Science Museum in London. What's that book about? So, so I, I have a website at... And it's uh, about Solar what? Cor- Maybe you should describe <laughs> what it's... Yeah, well, it's about the moon because we're looking oh, past right, the moon. Oh, right, of course. Yes, sun. yes. So that big black stuff in the middle of all those pictures is <laughs> yeah, the moon. Right. I, I thought uh, we needed to clarify. Sure, sure. Yeah. Okay, sure. So I have a website at solarcorona.com. You can see those those books and references there at solarcorona.com. But uh, uh, but anyway, the sun has this nuclear fusion that goes on in the middle uh, that makes high temperature, high pressure, 15, 000, 15 million degrees in the middle of the sun. And then gradually, by the time you get to the everyday surface of the sun, it gets down to around 6,000 degrees. And these are Celsius degrees we're talking about, so roughly double it if we want to think in Fahrenheit. And at that point, the gas is thin enough that you have to look through it like a foggy day, and, and there's some level at which it, you, it's opaque, and then a little bit away from that, it's just not enough of it to be opaque, and then we call that the edge of the sun. But it's really a gradual thing in gas. And, and the light gets out from that layer, and the Greek word for light is photos, so it's called the photosphere, um, and that's what we that's what's shining uh, every, uh, every day. And you can see a boiling kind of thing on the sure. on the photosphere and there are sunspots on the photosphere, lots of interesting things that we can see. Now just above that, and this is what I really did my uh, my PhD uh, work on, uh, is a layer that that when you uh, look at it at an eclipse, when the photosphere is just barely covered, there's a flash of red. Uh, that lasts a few seconds. And if you look with a spectrograph or spectroscope, if you're looking, you can see a certain colors, especially a red color and a yellow color. Um, and so it's called the chromosphere for colorful, for colorful sphere. Uh, and that chromosphere is really made of little spikes, spicules they're, they're called, that are about the size of Texas and they go up and down in about 15 minutes. Uh, and that's about a thousand times fainter than the photosphere, so you don't normally see it, though we can study it um, on a daily basis. And, and I'm here at OPT now, and and uh, there are telescopes with filters. We call them hydrogen filters or H alpha filters. Uh, if you're looking at the hydrogen gas that stops at the uh, at the chromosphere when you're looking in, that 
that uh, reddish layer. And that's why it would be red, right? It's just because of all of the hydrogen density there. Is that is that what's putting out that red? Well, um, no. Uh, it's yeah. It's uh, all the colors are there. Uh, there's really less red than the surrounding so colors of the spe specific thing. But if you have a filter that's just showing that exact color red that corresponds to the hydrogen light. Mm -hmm. Since there's so much hydrogen, when you're looking through that that foggy gas, right. it you stop seeing through it at a higher level. Sure. So I mean, when you're doing photography of a solar eclipse, yeah. you see that red. I know the red you're talking about right there. Yeah, at the red, red. So why is it red when you're taking it without ah, a filter? Ah. So uh, one of the things that was figured out in the 19th century uh, was was that if you just look at gas, and, and one of the people who did this was, for example, Mr. Bunsen, all the high school people using Bunsen burners. Oh, okay. the, the, uh, um, it, it turns out that if you just have some hot gas by itself, it gives off certain bright colors. We call those emission spectra, bright line spectra. And one of those, and the strongest of those emissions in the red is, uh, is hydrogen. Right. And, um, but if you look at some of that gas with a with a, a brighter source of just continuous rainbow of colors behind it, then that gas in between absorbs the color from coming from behind at that uh, at that specific color. So when you're when you're looking uh, at the everyday surface of the sun, we see these these dark lines where the gas has absorbed color from behind. Sure, but if we just see that gas right at the edge of the sun, just when the rest is covered up in an eclipse, we can actually see the gas itself shining brightly and the brightest color is red. Is red. From the hydrogen alpha. Yeah. Okay. It turns out that this uh, spectroscope that you can look through and see the colors was really invented in a quality that, that uh, you could use at an eclipse just in time for the eclipse of 1868. And a French astronomer named Jules Janssen uh, from the observatory in Paris, and I was very proud to get the Janssen Medal of the French Astronomical Society a few years ago, uh, took this spectroscope to uh, Siam, what we now call Thailand, for um, the eclipse of 1868. And he could see during the brief eclipse that there was a really bright yellow line, and it didn't necessarily seem to be exactly where the yellow from sodium that you see if you toss salt in a flame is. But he also saw that it was so bright, maybe he could see it the next day, even without an eclipse. And in fact, he did. Um, and it turned out that that yellow color uh, was not where the sodium is. So he said, this is, uh, this is different. And another astronomer in England, uh, Norman Lockyer, uh, hadn't been to the eclipse, but he got his spectroscope a few months later, and he could see this yellow line without the eclipse. Uh, and he named it helium because it just existed on the sun. It looked like an element that existed on the sun. Uh, and, of course, we know now that helium is a basic element, but it took uh, 30 years or so before that was mm -hmm. figured out, before helium was identified on, on Earth from some rocks. Anyway, the next year, uh, some American astronomers uh, saw a green line during, during an eclipse, in the corona, so they said, well, that must come from coronium. If we had helium, we've got coronium. Uh, but as you know, uh, coronium is not one of the elements. We now have the International Year of the Periodic Table uh, this year, 
uh, and coronium is not on that periodic table list. But from then, it took from 1869 till around 1940 before somebody figured out that what we saw is that green line from coronium, and there's another red line that's different from the hydrogen line, but another reddish coronal line, were from iron that was heated to a million degrees. And if you heat iron a little bit, you can drive off one of the electrons and, and you have ionized iron. If you heat it more, you drive off two electrons, higher temperature, drive off three, et cetera. So to drive off 13 of iron's normal 26 electrons, it's got to be a million degrees. And when that was discovered in the 1940s, that was the proof that the corona is a million degree gas. Uh, and so what we're studying now is this million degree gas around the sun. And we always also remember that the sun is just a nearby laboratory for millions and billions of other stars around the universe. So so it's the only one we can see the stuff in detail. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at the edge of the sun, the magnetic field of the sun sticks up in the corona. It's too, uh, we can measure the magnetic field in a sunspot. That's pretty strong. George Ellery Hale did that over a hundred years ago. But in the corona, we can't measure the magnetic field directly. It's too weak, but it's strong enough to hold the coronal gas, this this ionized gas in shape. And we see these streamers come out from the sun mm-hmm. at the poles. There are what we call polar plumes. They look like the iron filings that come out of the top and bottom of a bar magnet. So uh, the structure that we uh, hope to see when given clear weather uh, at the eclipse coming up uh, will be these streamers and polar plumes. Uh, and these vary with the solar activity cycle, sunspot cycle. And also there are eruptions from time to time. Maybe we'll capture an eruption or two, which we did a, a couple of eclipses back, and we studied the motions of the uh, of the corona. Uh, some of that stuff that's erupting in the corona include what we call coronal mass ejections. Uh, and the ones we see in an eclipse that go off to the side aren't going to hit us on Earth, but every once in a while some are just pointing at Earth. Uh, and um, and when they hit, when they hit the Earth, they can they can do damage to our satellites, to our transmission lines, etc. So one of the justifications for people paying money to solar astronomers to study the sun is to get notice of when there could be incredible damage done to the electronics uh, all around the world and in space. Yeah. We had Phil Plate here. Do you know Phil? Yes, Phil yes. Yeah, he was here talking about exactly what you're describing, and he was saying it's a trillion dollar project, but it's paramount it has to happen um because if it hit now i mean if if one if a huge one was pointed at us and hit yes. he said it would it would crush the power grid that's he's right and could zap all the spacecraft uh, but if you have even a minute's notice and you're alert you can power down the high voltage on a lot of spacecraft for example mm-hmm. and save a lot of things so so you want to know when the sun's going to erupt and, and uh, study the signs that show when there's eruption. And, sure. and if we can get a, a little advance notice, that would be good. The famous event took place in 1859 and was observed by one person named Richard Carrington in England. He was using a telescope uh, to look at the sun, and a bright spot appeared in the middle of the sun. And he got excited. He went to call somebody else about it to verify it. By the time he got back a couple of minutes later, it was gone. But that's what we call a white light flare. And we haven't had one that strong since. The but Carrington the, event. The Carrington event. But, right. the, but the next day, or a couple of days later, all of a sudden, uh, the magnetic measurements at the Kew Observatory in London started showing a big change in the magnetic field. 
And then there were auroras that went down even close to the equator, that uh, something had happened in the Earth's, in the Earth's atmosphere. Wow. And I read that the telephone lines were, uh, were glowing and sparks were coming out of the telegraphs at the time. Uh, so I recently came back with my wife to, from an exhibit at the Science Museum in London called The Sun. Uh, it's now being moved to Manchester and, and it'll go other places. And they actually had Carrington's notebook on, actual notebook on display. And you could see his normal notes on a page. And then all of a sudden something dramatic happened and, and he... Uh, and uh, and he noted that. So we haven't we have a lot of solar flares, and some are pretty strong, but nothing is as strong as that Carrington event from 150 years ago. And yeah. and we'd better be prepared for another event like that. We know the sun can do it, and it's sure to do it at some time. We just don't know when. And we're currently not prepared, is what Phil was saying. Well, he's right. Yeah, that's a scary thought. Well, because... we're not we're not prepared enough. We're working on it. Sure. Sure. Well, it just sounds like a huge undertaking, and especially since you don't. I mean, it could happen any time. You really don't know when it's going to happen, right? That's right. That's right. It's uh, less likely to have a big event like that when we're right. at solar minimum. Sure. Um, because these events come from these active regions on the sun, and you would normally see a sunspot at the most active region. Though you can have some some flares uh, at other times, sure. uh, too, that don't uh, show out of the sunspots. But, uh, but uh, basically, uh, there are times in the solar cycle when you're more likely to have big events than at other times. So I don't know much about the sun. Uh, Tony, you can probably speak more to this as well, uh, definitely more than I can. But you described the um, the nuclear fusion that's happening at the core or, or at, in the sun. And, right? and, and that's something else. I mean, the sun's a great laboratory. We have this nuclear fusion going on, making energy. I wish we could do that on Earth. Sure. Uh, people are trying. There are various ways. And the sun just has this big pressure uh, and gravity holding, holding it in. On Earth, we're trying, especially with magnetic fields, mm -hmm. to, uh, to hold the, uh, the million-degree gas to make the, make the fusion, because otherwise the protons uh, repel each other. So you have to overcome that repulsion among the elementary particles. And nuclear energy on Earth is done with fission, right? Nuclear fission? With the uh, nuclear power so far sure. is, is fission, yes. Right. But, there, but many people are doing research and trying to make nuclear fusion. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, one of the basic ways involves uh, well, something called a tokamak, which is basically a, a Russian name for some complicated magnetic field device that holds the million-degree gas that would normally just try to expand away, uh, but to hold it together so you can get the, the uh, protons to fuse with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and... Uh, we there some fusion has been made, but not but nowhere near the amount of energy it, it took to make these experimental things. So there are a lot of there are some big projects, big international projects, a big reactor in France called ITER for an international thermoelectric whatever um, to to uh, try to to try to advance this uh, fusion. And if we can get fusion, um, you don't have the same nuclear waste problem you have with. Sure. Uh, uh, with fission, and uh, the fuel is hydrogen, and especially heavy hydrogen, which is called deuterium, which we can get from the Earth's oceans. About one part in a hundred thousand is mm. fusion. But the the unfortunate joke is, so fusion is thirty years away, and always will be. Sure, yeah, that's what yeah. I've always heard too. And so, what's an easy way of describing the difference um, between fission and fusion? Well, uh, fusion is putting 
two elements together, fusing them together. Right. So normally we start with hydrogen in some in some form, and and you put together enough hydrogen atoms, and you wind up with helium. Sure. Uh, and the but the mass of the helium that is uh, there at the end is a little more. It, I'm sorry, is a little less than the mass of the four hydrogens that went into it, and that difference has been transferred into energy. And we all know the equation for energy, equal mc squared. So that little bit of mass um, that disappears is transferred into being a lot of energy. So that's fusion. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that happens in the stars. That's what powers the stars. Fission is when you have something that breaks apart, like uranium. Um, and uh, there are other radioactive elements uh, Term, unstable. They're just yeah. unstable. Elements. Yeah, they're unstable. The term radioactivity was coined by Marie Curie over 100 years ago. And the, and when you get the, these things breaking apart, uh, again, there's some energy transformed, equal equal mc squared. But also a lot of waste, as you were saying. Well, it, the, there, is, there is waste. But to make the point on a lot, um, it's not very much nuclear waste. And it is long-lived. Uh, even hundreds of thousands of years, but the quantity is not that great. So this is a, a fight sure. in, in, uh, in, over nuclear power. Um, is the, the having to take care of the waste for a long time uh, and the, the low, the low uh, probability of an event, and everyone said, well, there's a bad event, mm -hmm. uh, mainly Chernobyl, right. um, is... But is that worse than putting all this carbon dioxide in the in the atmosphere mm -hmm. and pollution from from burning coal or oil? Um, and many of us think that we do better with more nu nuclear power as a carbon-free way of uh, of making energy. Uh, and then some of that becomes a financial matter, mm -hmm. uh, but some of it is just educating the uh, the uh, the public on on the the safety. The safety issues and sure. Um, and, well, I, um, I have and, long been an advocate for nuclear power for most of the reasons you just talked about. I think that yeah, the 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 waste is uh, nasty, the, the, but it's not as much. I mean, I think the I forget about like a, a few megawatt um, uh, nuclear power plant generates about as much nuclear waste in a, in a year as, as about the size of a refrigerator. And so, yes, it's, it's, and it's nasty stuff and you definitely want to handle it correctly. But the reason I advocate nuclear power, uh, fission reactors is not only the CO2 offset, but also the fact that the technologies that are needed to run nuclear, uh, fission safely can be applied and and would help us when we do finally get to fusion and i think it's a stepping stone technology and i and i couldn't agree more that i think we need to think of, most of the problems i think with respect to nuclear fission are political and not technological i think it can be safer certainly chernobyl was a bad accident but the design of that reactor also contributed a lot to the the mess that it made so we don't use those reactors anymore in fact i don't even think the, the u.s or the the russia uses them anymore so yeah. no, I, these, I agree with you i agree with you right so the fusion then that's taking place in stars, this is where – so everything in this room, every element that we see comes from the star, comes from stars being fused at the heart of these stars. Is that correct or not? Well, sure. I mean, the, uh, around 
13 plus billion years ago, we sure. had this uh, Big Bang. And at about uh, a second after the Big Bang, the uh, universe cooled enough that uh, particles started forming. And within the first three minutes or so, um, you started having these hydrogen atoms and some of them stuck together to make a little deuterium. So I've actually participated in some radio astronomy studies of the deuterium uh, and the fraction of deuterium compared to ordinary hydrogen can tell you how dense the universe was and how fast it was e expanding just at that, at that stage. You get a little bit of lithium, a little helium, but then things kept cooling and eventually uh, then uh, much later, uh, at some uh, 300,000 years later, uh, the universe became less opaque, and and what was set free is what we call the background radiation that's been studied by, for example, the Planck spacecraft. Sure. Now, we've always been taught, this is interesting, because I've been studying this exact thing, this thing about, the, we've always been taught that the cosmic microwave background is the is the backdrop of the Big Bang, the, the imprint of the Big Bang, and you're talking about using radio telescopes to look at deuterium that actually occurred prior to that. So you can see past the CMB, at least to some extent, right? Using that's radio a, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And uh, some interplay of observations and, and theory have told us what the conditions are in the first three minutes. Steven Weinberg, a professor down yeah. at Harvard and, and yep. Texas, has written a famous book called The First Three Minutes. Yeah, three it's minutes. a great book. Yeah, it's called The First Three and, Minutes. It's famous. And, and I had an article in Scientific American back in 1974 with Professor Willie Fowler from Caltech, who ultimately got a Nobel Prize, uh, uh, describing our, our work on, on uh, deuterium at that time. Well, this is, that, this is that's interesting. My mind stuff. is blown right now. So yeah. <laughs> I'm learning a lot right now. So yeah. we, um, we, we just got a proposal more or less approved for some observing of deuterium in the outer parts of our galaxy at a set of radio telescopes in, in France. Wow. And this would have been deuterium created uh, minutes after the Big Bang, not 300,000 years after yeah, the no, uh, seconds Seconds after the Big Bang. Okay, yeah, seconds. The first, first three minutes. Yeah, well, seconds or minutes. Yeah, the first, right. first few minutes, yeah. Three or yeah. ten minutes somewhere. Yeah. And how do you tell the difference between deuterium that just would have occurred naturally and deuterium that would have been a response would have been a part of that epoch of the universe? Well, that's the great thing about deuterium. It doesn't occur naturally. Oh, so uh, that if you so, see any at all, then yeah, it's all the, from this period in the universe. Yes. So what ah. happens is is there are certain places you get less of it because it's merged to become ordinary helium. Uh, and so there are places where deuterium is depleted, such as in the center of our galaxy. But uh, but there's the basic background level that was all created in that first three minutes after the after the Big Bang at a level of about one part in a hundred thousand. And how are you measuring this? You say with radio telescopes, but I mean, how how are you splitting this apart to measure? This? Well, uh, the a basic way that we map the hydrogen in our galaxy. Uh, is to look at what's called the 21 centimeter line. It, the uh, the hydrogen atom has uh, has various uh, states of electrons going around it, um, but uh, but in the uh, uh, in in the hydrogen uh, there's a, a fundamental state with a with a little division called a hyperfine state, and. Uh, it has to do with spinning one way or spinning the other way com compared to what's going around it. And that tiny amount of energy translates into 
a spectral line at a wavelength of 21 centimeters. So that's a, a few hands across. Um, but, uh, and so there are radio telescopes that study that 21 centimeter radiation used to map our galaxy. Now, if, if you have a deuterium atom, there's an extra neutron besides the proton at the bottom that's being surrounded by these electrons. And that changes the wavelength, the radio wavelength, the frequency. Uh, and it's at 92 centimeters, almost a meter, uh, more than four times longer wavelength. So you, so you don't get as much resolution because the wavelength is much longer. Uh, and, it's, and it's fainter, uh, but, but you can measure the intensity of the radiation you get at 92 centimeters compared to the radiation you get at ordinary hydrogen at 21 centimeters, and that gives you the ratio of the deuterium to the hydrogen. And because nothing else then would naturally create this very specific wavelength you're searching for. That's right. You That's know right. exactly what you're seeing. That's right. Wow, this and, is fascinating. And so you can study this so-called D to H ratio, D to hydrogen all around the solar system. It's different on different planets. It's different in the oceans, uh, on, on Earth. Um, that's how I got into it. Professor Fowler asked me when I came as a postdoc at Caltech, did, using some radio techniques that I had been using to study the solar corona, uh, could we tell if the interstellar abundance of deuterium was different from what it is in the in the Earth's oceans? And the studies in of how we got the water on Earth, and obviously we have a planet with a lot of water. Did it come from comets? Did it come from asteroids? Uh, how much was left over from the formation? Uh, so people do measure the deuterium ratio to hydrogen, D to H, in, mm -hmm. in comets and in planets. And and uh, it's a it's a big thing to study in astronomy. It sounds like it's absolutely fascinating. I think I'm, I sidetracked this a little bit from eclipses, <laughs> but I feel like I could talk about this all day. This is This is fascinating stuff. But I do want to talk more about eclipses because you're the eclipse guy, probably more than anybody walking the Earth. You're the eclipse guy. So... Um, Let's let's talk about. Do you do do you do solar like do you just do solar observing when it's not eclipse? You know when it's not there's no solar eclipse happening. Do you just go outside and do any solar observing? Oh, I have a nice little device called the Sunspotter that that you can just uh, buy for a few hundred dollars and and put out and look at the sunspots on any given day. I mean, uh, there are no sunspots on the sun at the moment. We're at the minimum of the sunspot cycle for the next uh, year or two. But I am giving to my students at Williams College a seminar on solar solar physics in the uh, in this coming fall semester. In fact, they've just changed the name on me. It's no longer called solar physics. NASA is now calling it heliophysics. Ah. Uh, partly, I mean, helios is obviously the sun god, but it's partly a recognition that we're studying not just the sun itself and the corona, but even going further out in the solar wind and and further out as far as the uh, sun and the particles that come out of the sun and the expanding uh, solar atmosphere uh, govern most of our most of our solar system. And what's also the it's difference called... between that and uh, space weather? What's the difference between helios, heliophysics and space weather? Oh, they're more or less the same thing. I would say space oh, okay. weather is a manifestation of something you study in, in, in heliophysics. It's, okay. it's, can, it's, part, it's part of the same thing. And in fact, my... Grant, I'm very pleased to get a renewal grant for my eclipse studies from the National Science Foundation. I've had two that the second one just expired. I just got a, a third that I heard about officially last week. And it's from the Atmospheric and Geospace Sciences Division of the National Science Foundation. It's not from the Astronomy Division. 
So it's the connection with the, with space weather and making sure we don't zap all our spacecraft and yeah. that that puts this uh, this uh, solar work in the atmospheric and geospace sciences uh, instead of uh, instead of uh, astronomy. Well, that kind of research is absolutely important right now, especially right now with everything going up at the rate that it is, and it needs to be protected. And um, yeah, I'm not surprised at all that uh, there's an interest in funding those types of studies. But congratulations on a yeah, well, thank, thank you for job. Thank, thank you, yeah. thank you very much. Um, so you described sunspots, you know, the staff loves to take, we have a bunch of solar scopes here in what we call a lending library for the staff. And so they go out into the parking lot, uh, pretty regularly and have for years just yes. going out and looking at sunspots and different things, flares. Um, what are those sunspots? What are they seeing? Well, this was actually discovered. I mentioned George Ellery Hale, uh, in 1908, uh, came out to Mount Wilson from Chicago and built a solar observatory on top of Mount Wilson. And, right. and uh, later they built a 60-inch telescope. And a couple of years ago, I was at the 100th birthday party for the 100-inch telescope. Nice. Um, yeah, I actually have the, the bellows. So in my office right here across the hall, um, I actually have the original bellows cloth from that first solar telescope. Oh, okay. From, from George Ellery Hill. Well, that's... Yeah, it's in there. Anyway, so he published some papers in the in the first decade of the 20th century uh, discovering, he worked out a way... Of, of looking at the spectra of, of uh, certain spectral lines, some of these absorption lines that I mentioned, these dark lines in the in the uh, the rainbow of color from the sun, uh, and some of those are split uh, while when there's a magnetic field, and the stronger the magnetic field, the more that line breaks up into different components. So instead of just a narrow dark line in the rainbow, there could be a triplet of lines. And the, the flankers on the left and the right uh, are uh, separated from the middle one, depending on how strong the magnetic field is. And he discovered the magnetic field that can be 3,000 times or so as strong as, say, a typical, a typical horseshoe magnet that you might play with uh, on Earth, or which is also similar to the strength of the Earth's magnetic field that makes a compass needle, uh, needle align. So we realize that there are these very strong magnetic regions on the sun. And uh, and what's on the sun is even puny compared to some other stars. There are stars that we now know have have much more powerful magnetic fields on them and bigger regions covered with spots. Well, you were talking about the, we're, we're entering solar minimum here, getting ready to get into what's called solar max, which you have a lot of these uh, active regions on the sun, more and more of them occur. My question is, when because now we're worried about the CMEs, these coronal mass ejections that are directed toward the Earth, and now more than ever, as you've, as you've both pointed out, the risk to these satellites and to all of our technological infrastructure is really high now, at least as far as being, or I should say not high, it's the risk is, is very real. And these, these things are all very vulnerable. How would you characterize the risk of our technology to CMEs? You're saying that the last one happened in, in with the Carrington, the, well, a major one happened during the, the Carrington event. Uh, Phil Plate was just telling us about one that we barely, that, that, that barely missed us. Is this a risk that is very high, or is it one that happens every few hundred years? Uh, how would you characterize the risk of CMEs to the Earth? Well, when you have one event uh, 150 years ago, you have trouble telling how often they come. Exactly. Yeah, so, that's so, yeah. So, so let's wait till we have a few events 
So let's wait a few hundred years, and, and we'll give you some. <laughs> we'll give you some statistics. It's hard, isn't um, it? It's hard to really yeah, say. Uh, uh, yes. Yeah. So uh, I think we should be nervous. And these days, we're also realizing to be nervous about the bad actors who are sending false computer signals up to the satellites. Uh, are the satellites really protected from uh, from rogue actors uh, trying to turn them off? Uh, there are a lot of a lot of problems with all these satellites that are up there. And then we don't uh, we don't want them uh, smashing into each other and making interference up there, um, and uh, and we don't want something with a strong radio signal just losing its its uh, bearings and starting rotating, uh, sending down bad radio signals that come around every few seconds. Uh, there are there are a lot of problems, and there's no real czar to to keep things clean and helpful. Uh, up there. So as we get put more and more satellites up, it uh, it gets uh, more and more worrisome. Yeah, that's that's just one of the problems, I guess. Now that I think about it, is it's being hit by a CME. There's also the uh, this the all the stuff that's just up there. I mean, the space junk <laughs> uh, that's up there is just incredible. So that's a slightly different issue too. And I suppose that is maybe even a greater risk. Yeah. Uh, in the as short far term, as, at least. As, to get back to the sun, um, the there is a, a sequence on the sun. Called the well, we see it as what we call the butterfly diagram. If you plot out the latitudes on the sun and where the sunspots are, uh, and how strong they are over the eleven-year sunspot cycle, they start at a, sort of a middle latitude, forty-five degrees or so, and they get closer and closer to the equator, maybe down to five degrees, uh, and then they start up again. Then we what we say is the new cycle is starting again at higher latitudes. Um, so the and and in fact the north and south poles of the of the sunspots reverse uh, after that eleven years, and so it's really a twenty-two year uh, sunspot cycle. Now this last year, this last cycle, the 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 first precursors of the new cycle were delayed in coming, and people were even saying maybe there won't be a next cycle. So the only thing more exciting than Having a, a next cycle could be having no next, uh, no next cycle. Also, uh, some people have been measuring the intensity of the of the magnetic field in the sunspots, and I told you that for uh, George Ellery Hale a hundred years ago, it was close to uh, three thousand times a bar magnet, and now more recently it was closer to seventeen hundred times a bar magnet and. There have been some calculations that when it gets below around 1,500 times, you might not actually see sunspots. There might be some magnetic field you can measure without them showing us the dark sunspots. So we don't really know. And, and people have been saying uh, that the newer models and new, newer measurements have shown these higher latitude spots again. Uh, and you see it also in the coronal, uh, in the coronal uh, measurements. Uh, and these high latitudes the are bad. Gas, high latitudes. Well, the, no, the new spot, the new cycle should start at the high latitude. So when oh, and then work down. I see. Yeah, and work down. So if we didn't have them, maybe there wouldn't be a next uh, a next cycle. I see. So okay. So I once went to a meeting uh, on sunspots, and there were four papers in a row in one of the sessions. And the first paper was the next cycle is going to be uh, stronger than average, and the next uh, paper was the next cycle is going to be weaker than average. And the third paper was the next cycle is going to be either stronger than average or weaker than average. And the fourth paper was the next cycle is going to be neither stronger than average or weaker than average. So <laughs> oh, in other words, 
In other words, people are pretty bad. And and uh, that reminds me of the old accountant joke about you know IRS uh, accountants putting in ten different uh, ten different tax returns and getting ten different results. So it seems like a lot of people are just not really sure what's uh, how to predict this stuff. Sure. And to get back to the corona, uh, the, the just why the corona is a, is a million degrees uh, is the subject of many different solutions, many different models for the details. And we're sure it has something to do with the corona magnetic field, but just just how that magnetic field vibrates uh, or directs particles into the corona. It's got to, we've got to get a little energy into the corona, and then we've got to get it to stay there and not just pass through. Now, the corona is low density. So it doesn't take much energy to make the few particles in the corona move around very fast. And, and the speed of these particles is what, what we call temperature. So it's not as though when you stick your hand in a very hot tub, there's a whole lot of water around it. A lot of heat can be transferred. In the corona, you wouldn't transfer a lot of this, this energy as heat, but the individual particles are moving fast. And that's what we call a million degree temperature. Yeah. And and I want to talk a little bit, but go back to what you were talking about with the chromosphere. And we'll, I'll tie that in with the, the uh, active regions here in a, in a second. But when you look at the sun through a telescope like a Coronado Supermax or whatever, an H-alpha telescope, uh, what you're looking lot, at. Which is a lot of fun to do. I love it. It is. That. It is. A, that's my favorite. I mean, so, that's my so, favorite and telescope. Let me, so let me make one more. Before you ask your question, let me make okay. one more thing. So when you look in H-alpha, you're seeing a level above the everyday surface. You're not seeing the photosphere. You're seeing the chromosphere. That's right. So you, so you are seeing the how the magnetic field in the in the chromosphere uh, moves the gas around, and there are features that you see in the chromosphere that are more interesting on a day to day basis than just a white light image of the photosphere, which at the moment is pretty blank. But and that's uh, where it's a million a million yeah, degrees. Uh, no, that the the. The chromosphere is more like sixty thousand degrees or so. It's part, oh, so that's it's like part way up, but it's that's uh, like where Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, exactly. it's Florida versus say California. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah photosphere. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. So, so there's a, but that's one reason why it's fun to have a. I also have a Coronado that works at uh, ultraviolet uh, uh, wavelength, which is from uh, no uh, way. How do you see from, anything from calcium? From calcium. Oh. And and the problem is, yeah, as you just said, it's very hard to see. It's, <laughs> That's... Uh, may, maybe maybe young people see a little better, but it's it's pretty faint image in there. Um, but but it is strong, and of course, if you you're photographing, the film is very sensitive there. So, mm -hmm. um, oh, I suppose. And of That's course, right. now CCDs, you can you yeah. So so these um, these uh, ionized calcium, the fundamental lines are are uh, just short of the blue in the uh, ultraviolet. And um, uh, and so it's fun to compare what the sun looks like in the calcium lines compared to what it looks like in that uh, in that hydrogen line. So in any case, Coronado made or made, I don't know if they still make it uh, the uh, this other this other wavelength, and it's it's fun to look at the sun mm -hmm. in different wavelengths. The sun just oh, looks different in all these different wavelengths. Well, when you so when you're looking at let's let's go back to the H alpha part then of a Coronado or whatever telescope it is, you're when you look at the active regions and the uh, filaments that are on the disc versus what th that by the way yeah. the bright areas yeah. those are yeah. those are active regions right those are areas of high magnetic activity. 
Yes, but there are these, as you just used the word filaments, completely correctly. There are the, if you look in H-alpha, you see this other structure, including these dark filaments that snake around on the surface of the sun. So they don't show if you're just looking at ordinary white light, but in H-alpha they show. That's right. And that same structure, that f what is dark on the disk, is actually bright on the limb. If it, and that's a prominence. Yeah, if it rotates, exactly. If it rotates to the edge and sticks up off the edge, this is the effect I talked about before. It looks different when you're absorbing against something and mm -hmm. as opposed to when you're just looking at it against no background or just dark sky in the background. Then there's these beautiful prominences at the uh, at And you the can edge. see those during eclipses, too. You can see prominences. We, there was, there were some beautiful prominences at that 2017 eclipse. Yeah, yeah. These these active regions, you can actually track what you're talking about with this butterfly effect or, or whatever it happens to be. Uh, and so while we're on the subject of eclipses, and you've been to so many, uh, can you give us some sense of how you as a professional prepare for these eclipses? And what advice would you give to somebody who maybe wants to be more than just a casual observer, but really wants to do some imaging or something like that? What advice would you get for preparing to get ready for a solar eclipse? Well, again, it depends how experienced you are. So advice that I can join a lot of other people saying, for a first-time observer, don't take your camera. We'll, we'll get pictures. I know. We'll be glad to give you <laughs> pictures. Just really enjoy it. And of course, then there are a lot of people who, who set up a camera. But remember that you need the, the safety solar filter that takes out uh, everything except one part in a million or so for eye protection for the first, what we call first contact to second contact, the first hour and a half. And then after after third contact, sec between second and third is when the ed other edge of the moon touches the inside of the sun. So uh, whenever the sun is not totally eclipsed, you need this eye protection filter. So there are a lot of people who've had filters they neglected to take off because they were just so busy crying or screaming or doing other mm -hmm. things when totality <laughs> uh, uh, started. But but uh, um, there are also all kinds of pictures. Uh, this next eclipse coming on July 2nd is only 13 degrees above the horizon. So um, even a regular camera, what I call a 50 millimeter lens on a traditional Nikon, uh, would give a nice panorama and with a, with a, a small but, but visible uh, corona around this dark central moon uh, in the sky, and then you're looking far out, more than a hundred miles in the sky. So there's some light that's being scattered in, and it looks reddish. So you kind of get a 360 degree sunset effect. So it's fun just to try to get a wide angle view. If you want a telephoto view, uh, once you go above 300 millimeters, or 400, or 500 millimeters, or even more. Uh, then, then you see more of the structure of the of the sun, and uh, we do we do use these long lenses, and we bracket very severely. Uh, we take everything from two seconds down to two thousandth of a second, uh, and then uh, and then there are people, not me personally, but there are people who know how to take the best parts of these images. Uh, I work especially with a New York musician, Wendy Carlos, who uses Photoshop to take the best parts of a bunch of images. And I work with some professional astronomers who, uh, who uh, uh, use a, a higher level algorithm to, uh, to look at some enhanced contrast. Uh, so it doesn't look exactly the way it looks to the eye, but, uh, but there are ways of, of using those high contrast images to compare with the predictions that are made of the shape of the coronal magnetic field. 
from using spacecraft observations of the magnetic field, sunspots, and other aspects over the over the month before. Um, so uh, it's fun to get these bracketed images, uh, and uh, in a couple of minutes of totality, you have plenty of time to take a, a series of images, uh, and uh, especially if you have your computer set to control the camera, uh, and then still get time to look up and see the effect yourself. Dustin, do you have any advice? I mean, you, I'm sure that you, when, when you sent Ian out, I don't know if you've taken any pictures of an eclipse, but... I've actually never seen one, so I've never seen a, a total... Um, I we've got to do something about that. I yes, know, most I am, definitely. I am actually. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to do the next one with uh, one of our uh, photographers here, Travis Burke. He he travels, and that's really all he does is an adventure. He's an adventure photographer, but uh, he invited me to the next one with him. So I'll be I'll be seeing one. By the next one, but, you mean in Texas? So yeah, we have some of our staff going to Chile. Uh, okay. What next month? Right? Yeah. Is when they're they're yeah, July second, and then. Um, but yeah, I mean the one in Texas is where because he was just saying I think it's like four yeah. minutes or five minutes or something that it'll be. It's a little longer. It's yeah. a long yeah. one, yeah. yeah. So uh, we want to get some photos, but you know I think what uh, what our staff generally does is they go out with two systems and they have one that they're shooting through the solar telescope, like you yeah. said, with filtered, yeah. so it's safe. Because if you just put a lens on that, you're going to burn through the aperture. Oh um, yeah, you need you need the, the, you know, the solar every, filter. In front. Yeah. yeah, and so. Um, so they shoot the solar telescope and then right then the last second when it goes full yep. um, eclipse, they shoot with, through their regular lens and they just pop the, the uh, cap off and take the photos there with the regular camera. And then as soon as it crosses back, they switch back to the solar one. Sure. Well, the timing is important for taking that filter off. If you a little late, you miss the diamond ring. Right. Uh, at the end, you can really see the diamond ring start and then put the filter on. Right. So... Uh, each camera really needs two people, one to actually run the camera and the other just to take the filter on and off at the right time. Right. That's got to be a fun type of um, photography experience, though, because it is such a short window. You've got to get it right. You have to get it right the first time. So you really have to know what you're doing. And that it, it does sound very intriguing. It can be stressful, though. I mean, HAO tra tra traveled to every eclipse every year, in part because they operated a coronagraph on Mauna Loa, and they needed to calibrate that coronagraph. And so they would travel to every solar eclipse. I didn't get to go, unfortunately. But their goal was to measure the corona as as is with a higher resolution as they could to get a sense of the field lines and and uh, all the features that we've talked about in this podcast. And then they would go back and use that data to calibrate the the Mark IV chronograph that they had, which they were using on a daily basis. So the, the setup was incredible. They would start six months in advance. They would have, they had their chronograph equipment, but then they would do rehearsals. They would, they would have it all sitting in boxes and then they would rehearse over and over again. And who's going to do what, what is your role? And you didn't mess around because they were like, you're there to do a job. We're not there to look at the eclipse. We're not there to cry. We're there to do a job. And it was stressful, man. I helped them a couple of times in Boulder, but um, I never, got to go and I, they would tell me stories about how if they if this was got screwed up they couldn't get their data to calibrate the instruments for whenever the next eclipse was so it was a big deal yeah we built an instrument once to match the uh one of the coronagraphs on on the well the solar and heliospheric observatory which has been up for tw almost 25 years is now is it still working is it still up? it's it's still working and uh, there were three coronagraphs, C1, C2, and C3. Yeah. So C1 was the traditional kind of coronagraph with an internal occulter. Uh, and we built um, 
a, a device for the eclipse to match that field of view uh, so we could calibrate. It had a lot of scattered light in it. Uh, and then that spacecraft went haywire and that C1 broke. But C2 and C3 are still working. And I can't believe there it. There hadn't been a replacement. Uh, so uh, the on that same spacecraft, there were some ultraviolet cameras that have been superseded. There, there's uh, one of my former students, Dan Seaton, that now uh, works with the so-called SUVI, Solar Ultraviolet uh, Imager, on a NOAA satellite. And the Solar Dynamics Observatory, which is a NASA satellite, gets a lot of these, these ultraviolet images of the surface of the sun. Uh, but to, but this so-called coronagraph, which blocks out the inner solar radius around the sun, leaving a donut for us at eclipses to fill in, to give the only time you can get a full view of the sun. But nonetheless, those C2 and C3 coronagraphs uh, are still are still operating, discovering wow. thousands of comets that are coming close to the sun oh, and, I know. Uh, and showing these eruptions going out into space. That spacecraft was launched the same year or a few months after the Hubble Space Telescope. That's how long it's been up there. And it's at the L1 point. And I just want to say to everybody out there who's listening to this, who's freaking out about the JWST being at L2 and not being able to be worked on, there's an example. We have experience of a space telescope that has been up there and not touched since it launched and it's still working what is it 20 what are we in 29 29 years 26 20, years, I forget. 2019 well i think i think it went up in i i have a new a new graph i just I did the sunspot cycle with all this with all the spacecraft on it i'm not looking at it right now but i, I think uh, soho is 1995 so that make it almost almost 25 years is it that hubble, okay course. i thought it was the same year 1990 well, okay, maybe, well hubble, maybe it was a couple years later okay then yeah but either but way hubble, that's a yeah. long long time yeah so, well you know but uh, we've got to get it to work the first time. It's not just the longevity, but uh, I'm a little worried about uh, JWST. But, uh, but <laughs> a lot of people, uh, we I, all are. We're all I've, been I've been following the test. They're doing. They're doing more. They're doing more extensive testing on it uh, before it's launched than uh, than they did on Hubble, for example. Um, it's probably a good idea. And yeah, and yeah, definitely. We, yeah. Yeah, we did have to get up to fix Hubble, but it, uh, but it, but it certainly worked. All right. Well, Jay, this has been an awesome discussion. Um, is there anything more you'd like to add that we haven't covered so far? I do have a I do have a tourist group that comes along uh, comes along with me, uh, and we had a couple hundred people with us in Oregon. We have a hundred people with us in 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 Chile uh, next week, and I'd be glad if the listeners would would uh, look at my at my website that. Uh, uh, well, first of all, solarcorona.com for the books, including the book on the sun. I have a new book on the overlap of art and astronomy also uh, that's, uh, that's just coming out. And, uh, but but if, if people wanted to contact me about joining our, our uh, tourist group for uh, Chile or Antarctica in, uh, in Ar well, Argentina in, 20, in 2020 and uh, Antarctica in 2021 and Australia in 2023, not to mention back in Texas, which is easier in, in 2024. There, we can we can talk about that. Well, if someone's wanting to experience the total eclipse, you're the man to do it with, Jay. You're Most fascinating, definitely. and yeah, this is this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you for joining us today. This is this is amazing. Well, I'm. Yeah. It, it's been fun. I've been glad to talk to you both, and right. uh, and I and I hope I'll meet you uh, the Florida contingent of the interviewers. <laughs> and, yep. Uh, the Florida, the Florida OPT team. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, maybe yep. even at an eclipse. 
I would love it. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, I, 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 the last, unfortunately I've only been to a couple, but the most memorable one for me was in 1979. I was a high school student. We went to Montana and I got to work a C8 with a Daystar filter and film, you know, uh, unfortunately, but, uh, uh, that was, it was an amazing experience, very stressful, but I did get an image of a prominence off of the, off of the limb of the sun. I still have that hanging in my office. It's one of my points of pride for my, uh, life. Cause it was with the, you know, I was just a high school student able to do this and it was just so much fun. So folks, if you get any kind of a chance to view an eclipse, whether it's partial annular total, definitely take the take uh take the opportunity to do that total eclipses are they they're just take your breath away life-changing as we've talked about i was here in florida in august of seven of 2017 i couldn't get to totality but i remember it was a it was you know as the eclipse was happening i'm sitting on my back porch just experiencing what's going on and i live in kind of a wilderness area lots of lots of animal activity and when that eclipse when it got the darkest it didn't get totally dark here it the, the Everything was silent. The woods, the animals, there was no movement. The animals weren't even doing anything. They were like stunned as well. It was a surreal, ex- incredible experience. And and it was cloudy that day. I couldn't even see the the annular, or I'm sorry, the partial eclipse uh, because of, so I'm just sitting there, you know, watching it get darker. Uh, but it was, it was amazing. It was just, uh, it was weird how the animals just, they just suddenly, that was just so quiet. Well, this has been, I'll go ahead and close out this podcast. This has been a really great discussion, solar eclipses, viewing the sun. And our guest today was Jay Paskoff. He is a a professional astronomer, does uh, all kinds of amazing things with the sun. And so I want to thank you for taking time out, uh, Jay, to let let us get into your head a little bit. Well, it's been a lot of fun to talk to you both, and maybe we persuaded some people to uh, to go traveling into the zone of totality. I hope so. I do. Okay. Well, on behalf of Dustin Gibson from OPT, I'm Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space. Thank you all so much for listening, and as, and, and as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.